So I wanted to begin by thanking you all for your practice. Thank you. I wanted to um, honor my teacher, Ruth Dennison. It's uh, in the Dharma, it's said that we have um, two mothers um, or two fathers uh, um, or um, maybe the better word is it's two types of parents and one is our blood our, the person who gives us birth and then the other is um, the Dharma teacher who brings us into the Dharma because it is a kind of new birth to understand in a very deep and profound way um, why we're alive. And um, so, not that I, in, um, I wasn't living, but I didn't really feel alive until I came into connection um, with my teacher Ruth. And in the Tibetan tradition and in the Mayana um, Zen tradition, often at the beginning of a Dharma talk, there is an acknowledgement of every single teacher from the Buddhist time all the way to your own teacher. And because that, um, our tradition has been so sexist, at least for much of it, we've lost the lineage of women teachers. So even though I can't name them individually, I would like to honor them, their um, uh, their beings and their lineage, and then um, also the male lineage that has come down to us as well. I was so impressed when Larry began his Dharma talk last night by giving the title, because I don't ever have a title. I was like, God, he's so together, he even has a title for his Dharma talk. <laughs> and, uh, and then it was so beautifully structured, which I can't promise, because my talks are always so impromptu, so they tend to wind around. So, um, um, so I want to dedicate this talk to uh, my teachers. I want to also acknowledge Larry because he has held these retreats over the years and if he hadn't, we wouldn't be here. There wouldn't have been a lineage and a continuity of these retreats. So I wanted to honor and thank him for that. And then I wanted to honor um, all those that we spoke about in the group sharing and question and answer period, the people that might have been here if they were alive, but aren't because they have died. And when I think about them, and I think about what they might have said if, or what they might be saying to us if they're in the Deva realms and speaking to us, they might be saying to us, out 
of a great need, we are all holding hands and climbing. Not loving is a letting go. Listen, the terrain around here is far too dangerous for that. Out of a great need, we are all holding hands and climbing. Not loving is a letting go. Listen, the terrain around here is far too dangerous for that. And then in a slightly different way from the words of Martin Luther King, selected by Coretta Scott in 1964. We are now faced with the fact that tomorrow is today. We are confronted with the fierce urgency of now in this unfolding conundrum of life and history. There is such a thing as being too late. Procrastination is still the thief of time. There is now an invisible book of life that faithfully records our vigilance or our neglect. The moving finger writes and having written moves on. We still have a choice today. Non-violent coexistence or violent co-annihilation. This may well be our last chance to choose between chaos and community. Hatred and bitterness can never cure the disease of fear. Only love can do that. Hatred paralyzes life. Love releases it. Hatred confuses. Love harmonizes it. Hatred darkens life and love illumines it. I refuse to accept the cynical notion that nation after nation must spiral down a militant stairway into the hell of thermonuclear destruction. I believe that unarmed truth and unconditional love will have the final word in reality. That is why right defeated is stronger than evil triumphant. So we have the challenge of loving, and this is what the um, this is how the Buddha talks about um, those two poems in terms of our actual practice. Bhikkhus and bhikkhunis, abandon what is unwholesome and devote yourself to wholesome states, for that is how you will come to growth, increase, and fulfillment in this dharma and discipline. Suppose there were a big sala tree grove near a village or town, and it was choked with castor oil weeds, and some man would appear desiring its good, welfare, and protection. He would cut down and throw out the crooked saplings that robbed that sap and he would clean up the interior of the grove and tend the straight, well-formed saplings so that the sala tree grove later on would come to growth, 
increase and fulfillment, so too bhikkhunis and bhikkhus abandon what is unwholesome and devote yourself to what is wholesome, for that is how you will come to growth, increase, fulfillment in the stama and discipline. And then again, I have proclaimed to my disciples the way to develop the four right kinds of effort or striving. Here, a bhikkhuni awakens zeal for the non-arising of unarisen, evil, unwholesome states. And she makes effort, arouses energy, exerts her mind and strives. She awakens zeal for the abandoning of arisen, unwholesome states. She awakens zeal for the arising of unarisen wholesome states. She awakens zeal for the continuance, non-disappearance, strengthening, increase, and fulfillment by development of arisen wholesome states. And she makes effort, arouses energy, exerts her mind, and strives. And thereby, many disciples of mine abide, having reached the consummation and perfection of direct knowledge and liberation. So just to recap that because of the language. The um, four strivings or the four right efforts which are part of the Eightfold Noble Path are making an effort so that unskillful states don't arise. Making an effort when unskillful states arise to let them go or abandon them making an effort to cultivate skillful states and making an effort to make sure those skillful states continue. So you might ask, what is the next question? The next question, what are these wholesome states and what are the unwholesome ones? The, um, there are, according to Buddhism, 52 mental factors of the mind, energies of the mind that influence um, each consciousness that arises. And it's said that there are hundreds of thousands of moments of consciousness in a minute. So going very, 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 very fast, coming and going, coming and going. And each moment of consciousness is flavored with either wholesome or unwholesome states. So the unwholesome ones are dullness, Lack of moral shame, that is, doing something unskillful and not having any remorse over it. Or recklessness of consequence, lack of moral fear. Restlessness or anxiety. Greed, craving and clinging. Error. Conceit or an inordinate feeling, really, of oneself. Hate, anger, fear, envy, selfishness, worry, sloth, torpor, and skeptical doubt. Um, there is also, um, there was also, there should also be here delusion, a delusion and ignorance. Then the wholesome ones, faith, mindfulness, prudence or uh, uh, ethical living, discretion, that's um, uh, uh, another expression of morality, 
equanimity or disinterestedness in um, in all the um, pleasant exp in uh, all the seductive possible seductive experiences and um, um, amity um, kindness balance of mind and then um, the Buddha goes on to composure buoyancy pliancy proficiency and rectitude which are all the qualities of mind that happen when the mind becomes very concentrated. Plus right speech, right action, right livelihood, compassion and appreciative joy, loving kindness. So um, what, the, um, what, the, um, what the Buddha is saying when he says cultivate the um, wholesome and um, let go of the unwholesome is is um, saying that inherent in those unwholesome energies of grip, greed, hatred, delusion, envy, jealousy, revenge, lack of um, um, ethical living, in them, when they come into the mind and we believe their stories and their energies, there is always suffering. So even though the language here talked about evil, really, it's a sort of old translation because I didn't bring the book with me and this is a very old translation. Really, the Buddha isn't talking about evil in a way that Cath the Catholic religion, for example, or some Christian religions talk about evil. Um, the Buddha is really saying this is about what builds suffering and what ends suffering. Just very on a very scientific basis, what builds the suffering in your life and what ends the suffering in your life? And he's saying, I have looked at all these different energies in the mind and I have seen that the energies, particularly of greed, hatred and delusion, only bring suffering. And that the energies of faith, loving kindness, mindfulness and um, compassion, joy, patience, those energies only bring well-being and healing or an end to suffering and he's 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 just unequivocal about that so he says that in the same way he said in the four foundations of mindfulness that by practicing them we will come to liberation he also says in right effort which is the sec uh, the first um, part of the section on meditation practice in the Eightfold Path. He says, if we practice this abandoning of what is unwholesome and the cultivating of what is wholesome, we will come to an end of suffering. He said, when he looked into his mind after he reached liberation, and it was said, I think, as, um, uh, I don't know if Larry, you mentioned that when he came to awakening, his mind could see everything that there was possible to understand and see in the world. He looked, so it's just an amazing to think of his mind. He looked and he said, I can't find a beginning to the unwholesome states. I can't find a time when they first came into being. As long as there was life, there were unwholesome states. 
And as long as there was life, there was also the capacity to abandon them. So that there are these two things that have come into being with the world. Ignorance, and he says actually that there have been eons and eons and eons of ignorance and also the capacity for liberation both. So what he's saying is that when we forget, when we when we forget and when we move into delusion, we believe that following these unskillful states will somehow make us happy, and actually they don't. So in, in its most extreme example, we really could acknowledge that easily. So for example, in the war, um, let's see, in... Um, I, I, perhaps I won't talk about this war because then I know that there might be some differences around it, so that's not so clear. But um, for example, in Rwanda and the incredible decimation of peoples that have happened there, all those in the army who have been moved to murder and kill and slaughter are doing so because they believe that somehow that will give them the security and the safety and comfort that will bring happiness. They are not bad human beings, but just human beings actually like us that have been deluded into thinking that anger and hatred are the necessary actions for happiness. We ourselves have fallen into the same delusion. How many times have we been seduced into anger in, in the thought that by following it and striking out against an object or a person that somehow we will feel better? Not to say that when we feel very victimized or disempowered that anger doesn't have a role in moving the energy and moving us forward, but the energy of striking out against someone, the Buddha says, ultimately can never bring us happiness. It inherent in that energy is suffering, is the consequence of suffering. Inherent in the energy of greed and clinging and desire is suffering. Inherent in delusion and confusion is suffering. And that one of the reasons that these energies are suffering is because at the root of them is a lack of clear perception of what's going on. So for anger, the perception that gives rise to anger is only seeing what's wrong, is only seeing the negative. And the perception for greed and clinging is only seeing the positive. And the perception of delusion and ignorance is just being confused. So, so, um, <laughs> let me think. Uh, so, for example, you know, I think I've shared this before, so, some, of the, some of the times that I have watched instantaneous anger come up 
even rage, is when I'm driving and someone will do something and it is incredible how quickly anger will come up. And you know, and I've, you know, even watched myself give words around it, you know, and, and it, the, the, the perception, the thought that goes with the anger is that person should not have done that that you know that that they have really done this really bad thing you know and what the buddha is saying is that every time you have anger you can be sure you are misperceiving the situation you are not seeing the situation clearly and every time you feel caught in craving or clinging or desire you can be sure you are misperceiving the situation and so I have found that incredibly useful in looking at my mind states and beginning to find out, because some of you have asked, well, how do I know something is true? How do I know the difference between discernment and wisdom and a story? And the Buddha says, the way we can tell the difference between discernment and a story is whether there is anger or greed or restlessness or anxiety or sloth or laziness or torpor in our minds in our minds when that thought is going through us and if there are those energies for sure you can tell it's not wisdom and discernment on the other hand if there is loving kindness clarity compassion patience or faith for sure you can tell that that thought has wisdom in it that it is true discernment and wisdom and that we can believe it. So another example that just comes to my mind is that I was walking down the road the other day and I saw a piece of paper on the sidewalk and I felt this first movement to pick it up and then the thought came, you don't have to do it, Arena. You know, it's not yours. And, and underneath that, I saw laziness. I just didn't want to go all the way down <laughs> to pick the piece of paper up because it was an effort. And it was so cool because I saw the laziness and then I was like, oh my God, that was laziness. You know, I don't want to go for, with that energy. And so I picked the paper up and I felt so good <laughs> afterwards for doing it. So we... We all, we all, um, we all have uh, fallen into the trap of believing the energies of um, believing these energies. And as I've explored for myself, well, why do I believe them? You know, what is the root of believing anger or hatred or fear or depression or um, anxiety? It feels like at the bottom is the sort of this misunderstanding of thinking or of, of believing that we are inadequate in some way, that we are inadequate in some way or deficient in some way, that somehow we are not whole human beings deserving of dignity and respect that we have unconsciously believed it and that our cultures, you know, the Buddha says you can't tell what happened first. Did the culture come up and strengthen these potentials inside of us? Did we as human beings come into being and then create cultures that reflected back 
the sort of basic insufficiency and sense of inadequacy inside of us? I don't know. But um, what identity an ego is, is, in a, is somehow unconsciously believing these energies and building stories of identity and all the unwholesome qualities associated with them as a defense against this inadequacy. And I was thinking about this particularly because I visited my mom in South Africa um, before coming back to the United States from um, living in monasteries. And um, I know I was like saying, so mom, you know, tell me about Harry and tell me about Selma and tell me, you know, like catching up because I hadn't been to South Africa for a number of years and I was catching up on family. And, and I noticed almost everyone, she was like, oh, you know, this person, you know, so smart and intelligent and they went to medical school and this person, you know, they're really successful and they're so smart and intelligent and went this place and this place and this person's so smart. And I was like, wow. <laughs> you know, and then I... <laughs> And and um and then um I remembered that when she talked about her past, she talked about herself as the ugly duckling in her family. There were six of she has six brothers and sisters, and they were all really good looking. Apparently they were, you know, considered very beautiful in Cape Town and uh, where she grew up in South Africa. And, um, and she was considered the ugly duckling. And um, how she dealt with this is that uh, her, 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 her dad w ran a, a hardware store and wasn't very successful in business and her mom wasn't very well. And what she did is that she left home and moved in at 14 and moved in with her family as a boarder who were readers. So she would have access to books and she joined a book club and reading and being smart became the way she dealt with her own sense of inadequacy in her family. It became this big thing, and then, you know, she managed to go to university. And um, when I, when I, um, I sort of went back to South Africa and said, well, you know, I'm a Buddhist teacher, I know she had a really hard time relating to it because she couldn't fit smart or not smart into it. <laughs> it was like, what is a Buddhist teacher? You know? And so when she introduced me to her friends, the only way she could deal with it was saying that I was an author because I've written one book. <laughs> so it was a kind of semi-smart thing, you know? <laughs> And I and I and now she's 84, and because South Africa has actually got a lot of contradictions, but still thriving, and so she's able to work and sits on the board of a number of organisations. I can feel her incredible anxiety because she's getting older, and so it's harder to stay present with what's going on, and it means that she's less smart. And so her whole identity is being challenged. And it's been such a, 
a teaching for me to watch how she and we have held onto the stories about ourselves, whatever they are, as a defense against believing this, this unconsciously believing this inadequacy inside of ourselves and how painful it is because our stories can never really protect ourselves. There is no way we can find that deep sense of coming home that Larry spoke to us about by believing these energies. And that's what the Buddha was saying when he was saying the way to liberation is to abandon or to let go of these stories. So, um, 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 I've been doing um, I've been doing some nonviolent communication trainings, which I've really loved. I feel like they've been. Um, amazing, uh, uh, amazing training in, in um, challenging, really, the, the way stories hold us in place. And they have something called the needs inventory. And it feels to me very much like the needs inventory is a description of our Buddha natures. And their needs inventory is freedom, choice, authenticity, self-value, wholeness, creativity, significance, purpose, appreciation, acknowledgement, peace, community, support, co-creation, cooperation, consideration, mutuality, sexual expression, trust, affection, caring, learning, bonding, empathy, health, rest, safety, and it goes on, communication, empathy, love, intimacy, friendship, companionship, family, shared values, mattering, understanding, clarity, stimulation, creativity, beauty, awareness, connection with life, harmony, inspiration, order, and tranquility. You know what, really, just saying the words, what an incredible blessing. And so, um, I think of um, I think of um, a, uh, an incident of living with someone who kept slamming the door, and I and I think of the difference between the practice of wholesomeness and unwholesomeness in relationship to story on the one hand and Buddha nature on the other. So the story for, of insufficiency is. I can't believe you're so self-centered and inconsiderate that you would, whenever you go out of the house, you just keep slamming the door. You just never think of anyone else. So I would say that in my mind state at that time, there was definitely a sense of insufficiency, probably some anxiety, definitely some anger. And um, blame, judgment. And... Um, Turning it around and acknowledging Buddha, Buddha nature would be acknowledging my need perhaps for peace. And so another way around in terms of letting go of the story of you don't care and I'm not important enough to care about is 
I have a need for peace. And when you slam the door, it really kind of uh, shatters that. And my request to you is, would you be willing to consider closing the door more carefully? Caring, love, respect and acknowledgement. Acknowledging my Buddha nature as needing peace or mutuality or co-creation or intimacy or friendship or any, any of those qualities of what it means to be alive as a human being. Getting in touch with them, the wholesome qualities of mind, love, faith, caring, awareness, consideration, and from that place, making a request, both to ourselves and to another human being. That's what the Buddha was talking about when he was saying, let go of the unwholesome states because there's nothing in them that can bring happiness. There's nothing, that, there's nothing in them that can bring healing. There is nothing in fear or judgment that can bring a good outcome. Cultivate the beautiful qualities of mind. Cultivate the qualities and characteristics of a Buddha, of a Kuan Yin. And out of that, out of that cultivation comes not only communication, but the conditions for a heart and mind to open. Because opening is a, the opposite of the contraction of the unwholesome energies. Opening is an expression of the beautiful energies. So, so having said that, easier. <laughs> having said that, easier said than done. And I. <laughs> it's it, it is an ongoing process, and I want to acknowledge. Um, probably some of the most difficult places for me in stories where I have been unconscious. And um, one of them has been around um, what I describe as white privilege. And uh, the, story around white, the story around white privilege is really underneath it is inadequacy, is an insufficiency. And taking on a protective mechanism of assumptions that feel like they um, defend me against this basic fear and insecurity. And one of the ones that I see, I see for myself and um, that I'm learning over and over again is um, how not only do I think my opinions are right, but how much space I can take in sharing them in conversations. <laughs> And, and, and that if I'm in a room, like in a conference, you know, and someone says something, I don't feel at all inhibited in giving a long description to everyone in the conference of my particular perspective and view. And, um, and I'm just naming that because when we're challenged, when we're challenged, it feels very uncomfortable. And it feels as though I am losing something about myself. And what's so beautiful about these Buddha's teachings is that it actually provides the safety net in which to fall into when we're in the process 
of challenging our stories. So in the challenge, what first comes up is a sense of inadequacy, you know? And it doesn't even, it isn't even that someone is challenging me. It might be that I notice myself making an assumption. So for example, <laughs> I was talking with Larry and we were talking about cultural differences and he said that as an Asian American, um, he, his communication often is, is circular and not direct. And we were in a conversation and he said something and I said, so is that your way of not being direct? <laughs> And I saw, and I saw, and I saw that in saying that, I, in that moment, I believed direct was better than indirect. You know, my cultural assumption, my cultural white assumption. And in seeing it, I felt awful. Because what, what was going on is that in seeing that, that story and that defense cracking for a moment, it touched the insecurity and insufficiency underneath. And I can really see in touching that space how easy it would be to go back into defense mode, to defend myself. And I understand in a way why in the whole affirmative action that's gone, the struggle of, of uh, um, keeping affirmative action, that why white men have been challenging that so much, because in their identities being challenged, that sense of inadequacy and insufficiency is so painful that, that the reaction to that, when there isn't an understanding, is to move forward again, to demand the place again, because there isn't a sense of something underneath that is truer, that Martin Luther King spoke to and that this poet spoke to, which is the love that is enduring, which are the wholesome factors which are enduring, which are part of our Buddha nature. And so it is this incredible, this place of, can I allow myself to be uncomfortable? Can I feel the feelings? that are associated with my storylines, trusting that by doing that, I actually drop into that Buddha nature quality of trust, faith, loving kindness, awareness, empathy, co-creation, intimacy, and mutuality. That is what the Buddha and the Buddha's teachings are inviting us to, is to hold through the challenge to our storylines and identities so that we might drop underneath it. So um, uh, today we talked about storylines and you know what what is you know how do we work with storylines and how do we work with our thoughts, the thoughts especially that so are embedded in us or, or with the stories that we've created. And the, tr the invitation in this um, practice is to drop the thought around it and to feel the feeling. So around the listening part, you know, it was like, drop the thought and can I feel the discomfort around it? And can I feel that insufficiency? Can I really feel the feelings? And in feeling the feelings, which I did, I went and I practiced feeling the feelings in feeling the feelings, K 
maintain this kind of spaciousness and a sense of caring that, you know, that was part of me going back to Larry and saying, I'm sorry. You know, I just want to cop to that place of white privilege and racism. I'm really sorry, and I want you to know that I really care about you. And so also part of this exploration is about forgiving us ourselves and allowing ourselves to make mistakes so that we can continue in this exploration of letting go of identities and storylines so that we can touch each other in hard places, both in our own hard places and in each other's hard places. Just again to say that by dropping the thoughts and feeling the feelings, we come to love. And that's what the Buddha was saying. By letting go of the unwholesome states and the stories and identities that we have created that have held them in place, we actually come to liberation. We come to wisdom and caring. We come to see what is clear and truthful. So... um, um, there's this, um, we waste so much energy trying to cover up who we are when beneath every attitude is the want to be loved and beneath every anger a wound to be healed and beneath every sadness is the fear that there will not be enough time When we hesitate in being, we direct, we unknowingly slip something on, some added layer of protection that keeps us from feeling the world. And often that thin covering is the beginning of a loneliness which, if not put down, diminishes our chances for joy. It's like wearing gloves every time we touch something and then forgetting we chose to put them on. We complain that nothing feels quite right. In this way, our challenge each day is not to get dressed to face the world, but to unglove ourselves. So that the doorknob feels cold and the car handle feels wet. And the kiss goodbye feels like the lips of another being, soft and unrepeatable. So, um... So in the process, so I want to now acknowledge in the process of learning, because I feel like I'm really learning what it means to create here a multicultural community, both in terms of looking at my own stories and identities as a white person, also as a woman and as a queer woman, um, to investigating what are the What is the understanding that is based on love and respect? And what are the contractions that um, are are based on fear? Um, In that investigation and in our expressions, I want to acknowledge that we come from different places and spaces and that sometimes the 
um, the intersecting of our needs and our communications uh, um, are a learning process to be negotiated. So I wanted to apologize to you as a community in not um, sharing with you a teaching that I gave. I did this this afternoon, but I didn't do it to everyone because you weren't all here. And a teaching that I gave to some people who can't be mobile all the time. And I found that sounding awakens energies in a similar way to walking. And so I invited them to a sounding exercise um, without also communicating that to you. And so I realized that because we have a silent culture, some of you found or heard the sounding and was like, what is going on, you know? Aren't we supposed to be silent? And that probably elicited all kinds of different feelings. So I want to apologize to you for not clarifying that and just to say we are in the process of learning how to meet and acknowledge each other's needs and our different needs according to how we come into the community. And another place I um, used a swear word, I, was it today or yesterday? I can't remember. And <laughs> <laughs> so mindful, hey? And, <laughs> and, um, and I want to acknowledge that while my intention wasn't harmful, that might have impacted some of you from different traditions um, um, uh, in ways that were not comfortable. So apologies for that too, because again, we come from different cultures and we're learning how to, um, how to be together, you know, with our, with, um, our different lineages and stories and lives and cultures and um, ethnicities and religions and races and how we even come together as, as queer, bisexual, transgendered, inter... Um, I get dyslexic ar um, around the, the, the letters. Same gender loving, same loving, same gender. SLG? SGL. SGL, same gender loving. <laughs> um, and those, those descriptions, those and trans, those descriptions, and butch and femme. I read a book that said butch is a noun. It's not a description. I am butch, that's a noun. Different ways of naming and exploring our beautiful and diverse expressions and just to acknowledge we're learning, we're each learning from each other around that. So if in any way that I, um, what I've said has landed uncomfortably for you, I ask your forgiveness, I'm sorry. And I'm learning. The way of love is not a subtle argument. The door there is devastation. Birds make great sky circles of freedom. How do they learn it? They fall. And falling are given wings.
And then finally, in honor of um, in honor of all those that we have been present with who have left this world. This is Magdalena Gomez, a wonderful poet um, who, who lives in my area. One of my dearest friends is battling late-stage cancer. Sitting with him in the chemo suite at New York City Hospital has been a profound lesson in the essence of what it means to be fully human and alive. He is hooked up to an IV that delivers liquid irony through a port in his chest. The cure as hazardous as the disease. He sits back in a lazy boy type chair for three hours learning the ultimate lessons of patience and courage. He is calm except for the involuntary twitching in his legs caused by one of the medications. There is nothing I can do but be present and love him. Ask questions of healthcare practitioners and take notes. He dozes on and off, at one point wakes up hungry. He craves goat. So my friend Mike and I, who are with him that day, go pick up lunch at his favorite restaurant in the neighborhood. We find ourselves walking leisurely. We take photos of intricate and artistic architectural details of old buildings. We fear that they will be torn down to make way for cheaply built, overpriced housing for those who are bound in money but lack judgment. <laughs> the walls will be thin. There will be no privacy for lovemaking or arguments. New air conditioners will jut like symmetrical tumors as the neighborhood starts to look like other money-morphed Manhattan neighborhoods sterile, unimaginative, flat without detail, the gargoyles and lions will become extinct. Back in the chemo suite, an emaciated woman hugs a teddy bear. Another man stares into space with a bewildered smile on his face. It is his first time. He nods blankly as an empathetic nurse does her best to give him the details of the regiment he must follow. There is no one with him. He calls a friend to bring him lunch who never shows. The smile never leaves his face. I want to offer to run errands for him, but he stares straight ahead with that frozen smile, struggling to believe that he will soon awake from this nightmare. In the chemo ward, everyone is plugged in, attached to tubing, tubing immobilized, tuned out. They are the victims of avarice and colonialism, cancer, being the direct result of capitalism, overproduction, waste, pollution, toxins, the maximization of profits, replacing the conscience of those who have fallen in love with money over the essence of life. Outside in the sweltering heat of global warming, a mass of people voluntarily tune out with headsets, iPods, phone calls about Minutia and the latest mindless lyrics attached to monotonous beats. I have to pass at least 10 people before I can find one whose ears are unplugged and can give me the time of day. Back in the hospital, my friend and I talk about how delicious the goat is as we suck on the bones. The curtain around us lest we disgust anyone with our ridiculous pleasure. We roll back the curtain when we are done. My friend dozes off again. The woman with the teddy bear smiles at me and takes tiny bites of a cookie. 
The first timer continues to stare into space. I want to go and hug him, treat him to lunch, give him my phone number, but I can't. He isn't ready. In the chemo suite, I learn that each of us has the power to be free, even in horrible circumstances. But we must be ready to do battle armed with our presence. We must see ourselves in each other and know the moment is all we have and must use it well. The empathetic nurse brings the first timer a magazine and repeats all the instructions he must follow to try and save his own life. She uses multiple ways of delivery. She moves around, she sits, she jokes, shifting tones and approaches. She has known death and isn't afraid to dance in the middle of hell, unplugged, sassy and present. May we dance in the middle of our personal hells, unplugged, sassy and present. May we come to liberation in this way, doing battle with our unwholesome mind states, stories and identities, trusting and having faith. And in this, I understand and the only reason I can understand sitting here is to share with you that I have undying faith that underneath our stories and unwholesome states and insecurities, underneath our identity is our Buddha nature and a long-lasting, not dying love and wisdom that is transcendent and actually lives beyond life and death. To that and to that in each one of you and us here I bow. Walking and then um, who's doing meta? Are you or Charmaine? You do. Charmaine will lead us in meta tonight. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org/donate.